Welcome to On The Fly, the fly fishing podcast for people on the fly, with Ben and Steve from Meander Flyco. We're going to share some anecdotes, chat to other passionate fishers, and share some tips and techniques, because there's always something to learn in this game. Basically, we want to keep you connected to your passion when you can't be out on the water. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or check out our store or our socials at Meander Flyco, where we're passionate about equipping you for adventure. Well, welcome to On The Fly, and we have got a special guest coming back, actually, Chris Houston, from, or who was the organiser of the National Fly Fishing Championships just a couple of weeks ago in April, and uh, we were uh, graced with his uh, presence on the podcast just before that event, in fact, a few days before, hearing about how he was um, scrambling to make sure that it didn't rain and didn't blow wind and and he uh, did all he could there. But uh, it was great to have Chris back post the event to talk us talk us through how it all went. So welcome, Chris. Thanks, Steve. Great to be back. Sorry, I missed you last time. I think I must have been off on, um, I think it was on dad duties or something. I can't remember, but I know no, that you've been had a good chat. It was dad duty, Steve. Yeah, well, that's pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty standard. <laughs> Got to get your priorities right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, I certainly listened to your uh, to your interview with Ben um, just before the national champs, and um, it's great to have you back on. So, Chris, yeah, um, look, it was a great event. So happy to be here and have a chat about it and how it all went down. First up, Chris, how are you feeling after both you know being the head of the committee to organise it and competing? How are you going? Yeah, look, I reckon the two days after the event, I just crashed. It was um, a massive couple of weeks lead up, uh, organising it all. And then probably the three days leading into the event um, is when I really put the time into organising my equipment, time flies, getting everything sorted, trying to get my headspace right. And, um, you know, I think it all it all went okay in the end. Um, but it was certainly tiring. It sounds like it was kind of like the fly fishing version of cramming for an exam. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it takes me back to uni days. <laughs> uh, good. Well, it's good to see that you're uh, up and about now after, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks to let's, let the dust settle. But we did want to get you back on, and, and we're, we're stoked that you were willing to do that, just to sort of, I guess, uh, chat about how the Nationals went. And... Um, and I've already spoken to a few guys that were involved and they were, they were uh, stoked with the event, but also said it was a really challenging um, championship. Um, what, what were your sort of takeouts of the event, you know, broadly speaking? Yeah, look, it was certainly a different time of year to have it. Um, not ideal with fish moving into spawning uh, mode. And I guess on the rivers, a uh, big risk with, potential flooding, especially on the Mersey River. Um, the meander is a little bit more controlled with um, TAS irrigation helping us out with water levels. Um, and I guess one of the biggest changes last minute was uh, the move from Little Pine Lagoon across to Penstock. Mm. Um, not something we particularly wanted to do, but we felt that the water levels uh, in, in Little Pine weren't ideal for safety and um, we thought that Penstock Lagoon was a fairly reliable lake to move the venue to. Mm. 
So that was a bit of a last minute change and, and we tried to do it as early as possible to give participants a chance to fish it prior to closure. Um, and I think that in the end, fish numbers came out slightly better on Penstock than Arthur's. So, you know, I think it was the right call to, to make. Um, and it was my worst venue, unfortunately, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's life and that's the way comps run yeah, at times. Well, so. no one, no one can accuse you then of, um, of, uh, rigging the event. <laughs> no. No, look, I'd fished Little Pine twice this season in comps and um, it's been a cracking venue, but, you know, it's just what we had to do. So um, that's how that's how the game rolls. Yeah. So you were trying pretty hard. I think you were saying um, before the before the comp that you were trying to work with Hydro Tasmania to see if that would um, close the gates, but no, no luck there. Oh, look, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where um, I wasn't overly familiar with the the course of action. Um, it was a bit of a late request. And, um, you know, it's one of those things we learn from and try and move forward and, and cooperate together to create a better better um, competition flow for in the future. I guess the good news with it being down in Tassie, you're not spoiled for venues, though, to make that sort of last-minute change. <laughs> no, no. Look, there's a few different venues, you know, that we could have potentially looked at, but way back um, at the start of organising it, we looked at contingency plans, especially for weather, and Penstock is quite a sheltered um, venue. Mm. And it was basically Penstock or Four Springs Lagoon, uh, Four Springs Lake, that um, were our backup venues. And given that weather wasn't the biggest issue, Penstock seemed to be the most obvious choice. Mm. Four Springs is a little bit lower, isn't it? Just down below the tier on the north coast. Yeah, yeah. And for the flow of the actual competition, given that um, each day you were either on the lakes or the rivers, Penstock and Arthur's obviously quite close together. Yeah. So for travel and ease and convenience, it was definitely the obvious choice. Mm. Chris, I've heard the, um, I mean, the weather in Tasmania is predictably unpredictable. And, um, and I've heard, I've heard the, um, the couple of days of the comp being described as windy and cold, especially on the lakes, which, um, which is pretty much every time I've been there, it's felt windy and cold, especially on the lakes. <laughs> Um, but did, how how much did weather play a part in 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 the results? Do you think was it? Did, I mean, how, compared to the rivers and the rivers to the lakes, um, yeah. was weather was weather a big player or not really? Look, uh, in my sessions, I think it it was certainly on day one. Now I started on the rivers day one, and I would say both the rivers and lakes day one were certainly windier um and colder so for me on the lakes the weather doesn't bother me you, you're drifting you've got the wind behind you um you know it can affect your casting a little bit but you're never casting into the wind uh in my eyes having no wind is worse mm. uh where the boat's not moving you're spinning around in circles the drove's not controllable um but starting on the rivers day one 
Mersey River. Wouldn't you know it? I drew my house beat. <laughs> so, home court advantage. Was, there was one. Yeah, pressure. Pressure was certainly on to perform. Mm. Um, and the start of the session wasn't actually too bad. The wind was a little bit there, but but it wasn't swirling. Um, and unfortunately, I started probably and spent too long uh, in the wrong section of my beat. And as I got into the better water, the wind changed. I was um, getting wind coming from behind me one second, in front of me the next second. And the the predominant method for, for my beat morning session was nymphing. And um, it really made it difficult for that line control and keeping contact with the nymphs. So uh, one of the biggest things I used um, in my toolkit was um, short-range nymph under dry on the nymphing rod. Mm. So being able to flick the nymph out, um, lay maybe a foot or half a foot of line past the dry on the water, allowed a natural drift and kept the wind from blowing the nymphs around. I used the dry as my indicator and um, I found fish doing that. So I unfortunately, I didn't convert real well on my first six fish <laughs> and I only managed one out of the first seven. Um, but in the last half an hour, I found small fish. And about three weeks ago when we had um, the state rounds on the Mersey, all those fish went under size. Mm. And I think in the last three weeks, they've probably put on about half a centimetre to a centimetre. And about 40% of those fish that would have been undersized three weeks ago went just 18 to 18 and a half. So you so, found a benefit for running the a little later in the season. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the other 60% went from 17 to 18 centimetres. So mm. I got, I think I got eight or nine fish that went under size. I scored six fish that went just on size. I dropped another six fish that were good fish and got one big, big brown. Mm. So um, certainly in my beat, identifying the fact that there was some of those little fish in, in all the shallow pockets that would measure, mm. um, that were easy and quick to catch, that allowed me to put good numbers into my um, session in that last half hour and, and really saved it. Um, I pulled a second in my session with seven fish where I probably should have had 12 or 13 mm. um, and only just scraped through in a second place. So... It was certainly um, one of those things that you had to adapt to the fish that you were finding in your water. Mm. Um, some of the beats would have had those small fish and some of the beats wouldn't. So, um, and so what was it, the, so, and, so that was the Mersey. What was the general consensus on the Mersey? If we, if we sort of run through each of the venue, what, what were people sort of yeah. saying was the, um, was the good water they were finding? Uh, yeah, look... On the Mersey, um, most of the good pockets and the runs, like the really nice runs were holding good fish. Yeah. Um, 
the reports I had were people were getting busted up by good rainbows. Um, this season has produced phenomenal size fish on the Mersey compared to the last couple of seasons. Uh, we had floods three about three years ago and it wiped out a lot of the good size fish. Mm. And I've seen them come back over the last three seasons. Um, so a lot of people were very hesitant fishing 0.10. Um, a lot of people went to 0.12 just because of the size of the, the rainbows and that unpredictable um, head turn and, and hard runs. Mm. Um, and I heard a lot of people did lose good fish, myself included. Um, it was, yeah, certainly a, a, probably the better of the two rivers. Uh, the Meander River, generally, people found it a lot tougher. Um, I had one of the, I had the very top beat of this of the um, the eleven beats on that river, and which is very gorgy, big boulders, mm. deep pockets, um, but the fish just wouldn't move at all. So trying to actually get that nymph right on the nose of the fish was the biggest key and um, making the most of your opportunities on the meander because I think I had five opportunities or six opportunities. I landed five, one went undersized and I came second in my session with four fish. Yeah. So it was yeah. certainly a much harder venue than the Mersey River. And what sort of temperatures were you finding? Uh, was that sort of a result of the, the water being a lot cooler this time of year and so fish are a bit doggo or? Yeah, look, they were a bit. Um, I think on the Mersey River, there was probably slightly warmer water. Yeah. Um, in the afternoons, um, still now, I'm looking out my kitchen window and finding fish rising, you know, from about 12, 1, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and there are still the occasional hatch, but not predictable, not every day. Mm. So um, I think that the Mersey River was certainly still fishing reasonably well, but the Meander River, I think that, that chill, and especially the week leading into it, we had very cold weather. Mm. Um, it really shut the fish down because reports were, you know, two weeks ago le leading into the, the closure period for the competitors, people were still pulling good numbers going out in practice. Um, and that cold snap, I think, really shut them down. Mm. So while we're on the rivers, tell us about what were some of the um, the achievements of note on the river? Who, who were the guys that were really um, doing really well on either the Mersey or the Meander? What sort of numbers were they pulling? Yep. Um, yeah. Um, look, in my group, Jonathan Stagg got, I think, 12 on the Mersey River. Um, I came in second with seven. But like I said, I should have had a lot more. That was um, not a good run for me. <laughs> um, I think on the Meander Session 1, Tom Jarman had 11 or something around that, and uh, wouldn't quote me on that, but um, he did quite well. Uh, day two... Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I know Lubin Pfeiffer, um, he had a nice upper beat on the Mersey and I think he got 19. Yeah. Um, yeah. he had a cracker session. Wow. Um, 
And that was, leaps really, and really bounds well. that was leaps and bounds ahead of anyone in second spot on that day. So he must have just fished that water really well. Yeah, yeah. Look, I know the beat he had. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was beat two. And it's quite a long beat. Um, it has some really good, really, really good rainbows in it. Um, a couple of good runs. But it has a nice long glide where there was a lot of fish rising in that um, the week leading into it. So I'm not, I'm not sure how Lubin fished it, but um, knowing how good he is with mm. all round techniques, he, I think he really capitalized on all of the water in that beat. Yeah. So he did very well. Yeah. Brilliant. So, um, so it sounds like the rivers were, um, you know, they were, they were challenging and the people had to earn their stripes on there and um, you know, People, I guess, mixed results, and that probably threw a bit of a cat amongst the pigeons and stuff. How about how about the lakes? Um... Yeah, look, the lakes were interesting, and this time of year, really, those fish are moving into spawning mode. Um, they're pairing up. They're not feeding naturally. Um, I think one of the biggest keys in getting takes and getting good hookups were angering the fish into takes um, or you're know, angering them into coming to your fly and then doing something different in order to get a take. So I fished Arthur's in the morning session day two, really tough session. Um, I actually won my session on two fish. I was the only person in the group to get two fish, mm. which, um, you know, on those kind of low numbers really is, is a little bit of luck. Um, I got both of my fish on the hang and I, I credit to my boat partner a little bit because he got the first fish in the boat and uh, maybe to his own uh, downfall, he, he let me know that he got it on the hang. Mm. So the rest of the session, I was hang, hang, hang. And I managed just to get those two fish. I didn't waste time going from place to place trying to find fish i i stuck to the one area where i knew there was fish in practice and just concentrated all my time on trying to get a take um and that worked for me so it, it was certainly a tough venue and i think in the afternoons it tended to fish a little bit better um the group that followed me i think there was a lot of twos and a couple of threes, I think. Mm. So there were certainly more fish caught in the afternoon session on Arthur's. Um, but there was no hatches. Um, There's, you know, it was just all pulling basically and, and trying to bring those fish to your fly in some sort of um, anger trigger mode. Mm. So, um, I think Penstock was probably the more interesting venue in my eyes where I certainly didn't trigger onto what I would consider the, the method of the day um, until very late in the session. So I drew the compliance angler and um, that ended up being Malcolm Cross. So he lives on Penstock Lagoon. Um, and we went out together and I think the first drift he had three or four touches, mm. two hookups, landed one. Um, I didn't have a touch. I thought, gee, I'm doing something wrong here. 
Um, did another drift over the same spot. He had another couple of touches, no hookups. Um, I thought, well, all right, I'm not finding fish here. I'm going to move to another area where I found fish in practice. Um, I was lucky first cast in, in the next area. I, I got a hook up and landed that one. Um, I started looking at what flies he was using and I noticed that he had, I think on the top dropper, he had a coral, um, Vern Barbie fly, um, just a pulling wet coral color on the middle. He had something green and then on the point he, and I mean, bright green chartreuse, um, and on the point he had something dull. So. Um, after a while, I figured out that he was using those bright flies to to bring the fish up yep. and follow his flies. He got, I think, he got one on the coral fly, um, and I think he landed three or four overall. Luckily, his fish didn't count, but <laughs> <laughs> um, he certainly was onto the method of using those bright flies to to trigger an angry, aggressive, uh, follow and where they didn't want to take the, the bright fly or, you know, touched it with hesitance. They seemed to turn and take the dull fly, um, with more aggression. Mm. So, um, I also heard of other people in my session using a bright blob, uh, in the middle dropper for doing exactly the same thing. They weren't catching anything on the blob but the blob was bringing them up, um, causing that anger and aggression and bringing them to the other flies, which they wanted to eat. And those, so, other, those other flies were more naturals, were they? Or they were just a duller colour, something that was a little bit scary? Um, still wet flies, um, but, but more shreks um, or, you know, black, black and um, red or, or green and orange. Um, orange beads seem to be generally quite good. Um, but the, the real, the, in my session, the biggest key was having a bright fly there that brought the fish towards your other flies. Mm. Um, now you said that you were getting most of your fish on the hang. Did you find that when you, when you find that you've dialed that method in, that's what working, are you doing a lot, uh, you know, more short casting? So you're fishing that zone more frequently or are you still sending it out there and, and um, back or? Yeah, look, the few fish, the, the couple of fish, especially in our Arthurs that I did get were medium casts, um, allowing it to plop for a couple of seconds. I was fishing quite shallow water. So I went to one tungsten bead and two uh, brass beads so that I didn't go straight into the rocks, um, allowed it to plop for a couple of seconds, ripped it back quite fast, and then hung mm. and then on the hang probably four or five seconds a couple of little tweaks just if there was a fish there one of them as soon as i gave that little tweak it just nailed the fly um but i think just trying to cover water bring the fish towards your flies and then for me they'll take in the hang mm. so um yeah short casts certainly work as well um, I was going slightly longer, not not real long casts, um, to give it a little bit more time for them to come in, mm. and then just 
concentrating on that hang. Mm. Chris, you said you you were in the shallow water and trying to cover a lot of water, but would you were you covering the shallow water because um, you know the lugs were cold and thought those fish might move up, or was it because they were pairing up to spawn, um, or a combination um, of both? A little bit of a combination, I think. Um, so we had um, the Little Pine and Arthur's Lake uh, State Round a few weeks prior, and um, certainly in that competition, they seemed to be in the shallow water for the slightly warm, warmer water. Mm. But they were certainly pairing up. They were they were in little groups. Um, when you found an area, you generally did well in that area. Um, so in practice, I went back into a couple of those shallower areas. Unfortunately, Arthur's Lake had also dropped probably close to another foot since that comp. So um, right up the top of the cow paddock, in my eyes, was a bit too weedy. It was difficult to fish. There's only a few little pockets that sort of had deep enough water that you could really do much with. So I, I came back onto the shallower, rocky shores. Um, and luckily, I was in my own boat, so um, I could sort of drift a bit closer than what a lot of people were comfortable with doing mm. into the rocky edges. Um, and I just concentrated working around those rocks where, where they're given a little bit of shelter um, and the slightly warmer water. Mm. So in terms of the lakes, how, what sort of size fish were the sort of fish coming out? And who, who, was, who were the people that were really braining it on the lakes? Um, yeah, look, day one, uh, um, Chris Medwin smashed both his, his um, lake sessions. He won both of them. Mm. Um, it was very unfortunate that he had a family sort of emergency and and had to actually pull out day two of the comp he was in he he would have been yeah yeah it's it's, yeah i'm sure it'll still be bugging him a little bit um so he got three fish on both lakes and won both of those sessions um i think in my group like i said i was the only one to pull two fish out of arthur's in the morning session there was five or six ones and a, and the rest were blanks. So it was certainly a very difficult session. Uh, in the afternoon, I think um, Jonathan Stagg got three. I think um, a couple of other people got three as well. Um, Jason Garrett, I think he got three on Penstock and he was one of the people fishing a blob in the middle. Um and one of the, I guess, the probably the biggest highlight was Lubin on Penstock. He he managed to pull six, which mm. was by far the biggest number on the lakes. Um, I don't think anyone got more than three other than him. Mm. So he did really, really well on Penstock. Well, it's probably a good spot to talk about how how the the comp finished in terms of results, in terms of the podium. I'm, I've had a look, and um, you know, I guess there were maybe some surprises, but for people that have been around the comp scene for a while, they know that some of these guys. Uh, have been um, very well deserving winners and uh, or podium finishes this year. So tell us a little bit about how the how the results turned out. Yeah, look, um, third place had um, Dylan Cassidy, one of my best mates actually, and I think that's his first nationals to fish. He um, 
he fishes a lot of Western Lakes style fishing, sight fishing, um, and he's been in and out of a few state rounds in Tasmania, but, you know, he pulled everything together and, and came in really strong. Um, so came in third. That's awesome. Um, Lubin, like we said, he had some wonderful sessions as well. Um, managed to come in second and, um, the winner, uh, sorry, skips my mind right now. <laughs> King, King, King um, Rapley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gary Rapley. Um, now I've fished with him a few times actually, and he's a spectacular fisherman. He's, um, I think he's New Zealand born, mm. um, just got his citizenship and going for, you know, trying to make the teams. Um, I guess he was, I think, you know, the biggest key was stitching four good sessions together. Consistency. You know, a lot of people managed to have three good sessions and one average, and that sort of puts you in the top 10. Um, but Gary did very, very well, um, and full credit to him. I saw He's a, been I, working hard over the last couple of years. Yeah, I saw a photo on Facebook come out um, after the comp with Gary there. I think he was a 12-year-old over in New Zealand, and he he had, he had a... Um, a silver plate. He won the open, I think, with most fish for that season as a twelve-year-old. So he's definitely got some pedigree there as a fly fisherman. And um, you know, I know I know a few of the Vic boys are really stoked to see him get that win. And I think the Vic team also came out on top in terms of the team. Is that right? Yeah, so they're crowing a little bit at the moment. Yeah. I thought, um, um, yeah, no, oh, the Vic team did well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no. I was just going to say. Got a few gremlins there, but we'll Vic team did very well. Um, we had a slight change of how we um, scoring this year. So previously, we've just taken the top five uh, from each state, top five finishes, and um, sort of tallied that up to make the team representation. This year, we pre-nominated um, our teams from each state. Most of us, I think each state got to choose how they did it, but I think generally we went based on ranking points. Um, and, you know, the Victoria team, they, were, they did very well. Mm. So they had a lot, lot of... I don't think that Chris has planned this, Steve, by the way. I don't think he's talking about the Victorian team. He's not trying to make it go like that. <laughs> We just lost you forever there, Chris. We just had a, bit of, a few little gremlins, but uh, you were you were praising oh, okay. the Victorian team, but also saying that the uh, the way that the teams were scored this year was about them nominating who their their scoring fishermen would be, and that was um, how the the teams competition was decided. Um, I also saw young uh, Finn McDowell down there was the only, only youth competitor, but did some some really good things as well. How did he go? Yeah, look, Finn did really well, and um, I've been working with him a bit through the season, um, especially on the Mersey River. We've we've done a couple of sessions together, um, and we've been in the boat a couple of times together on in the state rounds. So um, he's really developing nicely, and you know, as a youth member, um, he's certainly extremely extremely good for his age, um, and give him a couple of years and a bit more experience in the comps, I think he will certainly be one to watch. 
Absolutely. But he to to finish in the top twenty um, and get some extra ranking points, uh, that's fantastic. And he's only sixteen, I understand. So fantastic. Yeah. Credit. Yep. I hey, wish I hey. started that young. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I still was that young. Um, <laughs> I, hey, Chris, you you mentioned that um, Dylan, your mate Dylan, who came in third, was his first nationals. And I heard Gary uh, say on an interview that it was only his second Nationals. Obviously, he'd been fishing for more than that that length of time. But I, I did also see that Julie Butler um, took out the uh, ladies' uh, trophy. And she's only been fishing for a couple of years, she said. Um, so what what would you say to people who are thinking about comp, comp fishing? I mean, there's a couple of guys who've been around for a long time, but first first couple of times or first couple of years at Nationals, and then Julie, who's really only been fishing for a few years or a couple of years. Um, what would you say to those yeah. people about the comp scene? Look, I think if you're interested and you've got a bit of knowledge there or even just, you know, you're gung-ho, um, get into it because absolutely those um, those top places can go to anyone who's willing to put the hours in. Um, this was only my second nationals and last year and this year I came seventh. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been putting a lot of hours in. So Julie, every time I'm down the river, I see Julie there. Um, so she's really putting in big hours, learning, working hard. Um, and to see her up there, that's fantastic. Um, you know, what a great effort she's put in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we are, we appreciate you taking the time out to come and uh, chat to us about how things turned out. And congratulations on your top 10 result as well. That sets you in good stead, a few more ranking points for the national team. Is that your end goal or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was disappointing last year. That was obviously coming in seventh, um, put me into the Commonwealth team last year, which um, got delayed and needs to be reselected. Um, I'm fairly certain that, I'll be in the team again this year. Um, what happens with it, who knows? There's talk of a trans-Tasman type competition uh, with New Zealand with um, sort of a half comp over there and a half comp here with an overall result. Mm. Um, sounds very interesting. So I hope I, I make the team for that one. Um, but, you know, it was... It was a little disappointing that I wasn't slightly higher um, to tie in session points with Tom Jarman and, and Jonathan Stagg, but come out just behind on, on fish points. You know, that can happen. Um, but that's how close it was in that, those top sort of seven positions was only a matter of three or four session points. So mm -hmm. um, you really had to be on the game in every session to to get a top result in this one yeah and it sounds like you know we, we were speaking before we started recording the podcast that this one i guess will go down as a really unique national competition just given the time of the event and um you know and just how hard some people had to work for their fish and maybe sort of think outside the box and that's you know that's probably not a bad thing yeah. in the long run yeah look i i certainly agree with you in that sense you know there was probably less variation in techniques um you know there wasn't really much nymphing going on or dry fly going on um but 
you needed to do something different to stand out mm. from the rest in in the techniques that were working mm. um and then capitalizing on the opportunities you got mm. awesome well look i guess um th this is something that we, we we try to do the other week but it um you know the grammar's got the system but we want to give you the opportunity just to say a few shout outs to you know maybe the the organizing committee or the sponsors or whoever it was that really helped the Nationals be the event that it was. So, you know, is, is there a few things you want to say in that regard? Yeah, look, the organising committee were fantastic. Yeah, you can't put this kind of event on um, as a one-person show. There was more involved than I sort of ever imagined. So um, thanks to the whole organising committee, um, our sponsors, Essential Fly and Inland Fisheries, um, you know, Without them, we wouldn't have any prizes um, and the cost of entering these kind of events would be much higher. Absolutely. So, um, and and also just to those who helped with the presentation day um, was, was fantastic, you know, um, allowed some of us fishermen and organisers to kick back a little bit and, and um, just relaxed after the event. Which was no doubt a few good yarns told. And, and in terms of volunteers, how many volunteers did you have for controlling and, and boat controllers on the on the? Uh... Um, so on the rivers, we had probably we had eleven beasts on each river, which had a controller on each. So um, as well as a head controller. So I think we had twelve or thirteen on each river, mm. um, and then we had a sector judge on each lake. And then a couple other people like Peter Brooks, he kind of took over the running of the comp, allowed me to step back and concentrate on the fishing. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to, to really do what, you know, place where I did without having that assistance. Um, yeah. So big shout out to all of them. Fantastic to have their involvement. Mm. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's, you know, maybe some of those volunteers will be uh, competing one day. I know that's how I sort of got into competition fishing was volunteering down at the Worlds. And, you know, I've got my first comp coming up in Tumut in a few weeks' time and I I can't wait. <laughs> so hopefully some Tumut's of those a great river. Down. You'll have a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking mm. forward to it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time, Chris. Really appreciate um, not just your time for the last couple of podcasts, but for... Um, for the sport itself and spending all that extra time coordinating events uh, that you're also competing in and, and having those two hats on. It's a, it's a big, a big ask and a big task. And I'm sure that all the guys and, and ladies appreciated all your work. So well done. Thanks, Steve. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Chris. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And um, I mean, the, the season's just closed down there, doesn't it? Officially 12 o'clock in about what, three or four hours, the season's closing. Yeah, look, I caught my last fish about four and a half hours ago, so I, I managed to scrape in the last few hours for the last day of the season. Um, there's still a couple of rainbow waters open and a couple of lakes that stay open all year, um, but really winter's my downtime, yeah. time to relax, concentrate on home and and um, prep for next season. Well, enjoy a well-deserved break, mate, and thanks again for your time. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening in to On The Fly with Meander Flyco. Don't forget to subscribe or check out our socials or online store at Meander Flyco. Until next time, tight lines. <laughs>